0: Welcome back to The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Swedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. On today's episode, we're speaking to Michelle Keller of Living Greens Farm. Michelle grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and was active in Future Farmers of America in middle school through college. After Michelle graduated with a plant biology degree from the University of Wisconsin, she also completed all coursework in the plant pathology program from the University of Minnesota. From 2003 to 2013, Michelle was the owner and operator of Labor Farms Hydroponic Lettuce. In 2013, Michelle started full-time at Living Greens Farm as head grower with accountability for research and development of production systems. This includes recipe development, systems development, and production parameters for baby greens, herbs, teen lettuce, and full-size lettuce. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi everybody, my name is Nadia Saba, I'm the president and founder of Dr. Greenhouse, and uh, you are listening to our podcast, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Michelle Keller, who is the head grower of Living Greens, an indoor lettuce farm located in Faribault, Minnesota. Hi Michelle, how are you doing?
2: I'm good, and yourself?
1: I'm great. It's so great to have you on our what plants crave podcast. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about you um, uh, about the plants you grow and about living greens and and this crazy industry that we're in of indoor agriculture. So first I wanna just ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, about Living Greens. Uh, You know, what got you interested in horticulture in the first place and growing indoors? Well,
2: I graduated with a plant biology degree back when hydroponics and aeroponics weren't even a thing yet. So uh, I I am dating myself a little bit. But I knew at that point I was interested in growing food for people. I I had no interest in growing flowers for uh, commercial purposes, except for myself. I really wanted some way somehow to make an impact on the commercial production of some type of food. I just hadn't figured out what yet when I graduated from college. I did spend a couple of years working for the USDA, but I want, again, still wanted to work more closely with plant production. So I opened my own greenhouse in 2003. That was an NFT system, hydroponics, uh, it was a crop king system, and I grew for nine years growing leafy greens and basil, uh, one band shop. So I was the grower, the salesperson, delivery person, you name it. I did everything. And um, we closed that nine years after I started, and I began working at Living Greens Farm about a month and a half after I closed my doors at, at my, it's called the Boar Farms. And I've been working at Living Greens on and off since. Uh, I was I started as a part time person at Living Greens because back then they didn't really have full time employees yet, and uh, became uh, basically the head grower after a couple of years. Um, you wanted awesome. to know what we did at Living Greens. Yeah. Um, well, in the beginning, it was all about proving a concept. We wanted to be able to prove that aeroponics can commercially viably produce a product, and figure out the recipes that would be needed to do that product. And so I'm in charge of the research and development of all the products at Living Greens. And when we settled on, okay, we are going to do processed chopped bagged lettuce. My job was to make sure that the products got to the point where we need to, where we can chop, wash, dry before they're bagged or kit ready to eat.
1: Yeah, so how did Living Greens even get started in the first place? Like whose brainchild was this that they wanted to prove this concept and who was smart enough to hire you?
2: The original brainchild was our original CEO, Dana Anderson. Uh, He wanted to figure out how to commercially grow aeroponically. And he saw in the newspaper that I was selling Labor Farms and a woman was buying Labor Farms. And so he called me up and said, hey, I see that you're a grower. You have some experience in this space. I could really use some experience at the farm. I don't have anybody growing that has experience. I have two college kids in the grow rooms. Can you come and help us out? And so for the last eight or so years, I've been all about developing the different products. We didn't end up on chopped romaine and chopped butter right away. We went through quite a few iterations. We went through quite a few generations of systems to get to where we are now. And we just stayed very small. Uh, We call it stealth mode, if you will, because we wanted to make sure that we figured it out first before Mm -hmm. we went bigger. And so we did all, every single herb you can think of. I've done corn. I've done wheat. I've done peppers. I've done strawberries. And we kept on coming back to lettuce. One, because I had eight years of experience, nine years of experience in it already. But two, uh, we saw that that was the best market right now, you know, um, Hmm. You know, back in 2014, 2015, the aeroponic industry hadn't launched yet, neither did the hydroponic industry, but we saw that all these players were out there. What could make ourselves different? And we, we decided chopped, the chopped market, going into the store, buying that kit with the little, the salad dressing, the cheese and the croutons already into the bag, and you have a kit bag, what do you have to do to produce that? Well, you have to have a lettuce strong enough to be able to go through the chop process. That was my job. That was, that was my goal is to find, remain strong enough, large enough, butter strong enough and large enough and all the different ingredients that we have in the, in the pipeline for all of our different kits for uh, when we do expand.
1: That seems like a really unique niche for what you guys do to have salad kits. Um, I mean, I I do feel like there's other indoor farmers that are are doing chopped lettuces, but this is a a specific market that I haven't
2: seen too much of from from the vertical farming community. Yes. Uh, One of our uniqueness, and I don't know if we're the only, but unique properties of us is that our processing shop is within the same four walls of our growing shop. Mm-hmm. So my grow rooms and my processing rooms share walls, which means that I have to keep my operation at GAP and GMP standards, and pass all the Primus audits that we go through every year to make sure that we pass all of the areas so we can sell through, you know, across state lines into these different customers.
1: That's so interesting. Um, I feel like uh, there's some vertical farmers who are growing whole heads that don't necessarily need to meet such rigorous uh, control standards.
2: I'm not gonna speak for them. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Smart. (laughs) So, um, I mean, what did you think originally? I mean, here you came from a greenhouse, uh, growing leafy greens and culinary herbs, and then you're asked to go inside four walls with, you know, electric lighting. Did you think that this was a genius idea or a crazy idea?
2: I had already been using supplemental lighting in my greenhouse. I I live in Minnesota. There is no way you can grow lettuce without supplemental lighting for part of the season. Uh, So the benefit that I found right away by going inside was that complete control of the environment. You know, when you go inside, you're, you're giving the plant the chance to reach that genetic potential by providing all the necessary ingredients that those plants need. Indoor temperatures, you know, don't matter what the outside looks like because you control it inside. The greenhouse offers that fabulous advantage of free sunlight. However, you can't control that sunlight. And I found that out a lot. You know, in the summer, you have too much sun. And if you're in Minnesota, like I am in the winter, you don't have enough. And so the greenhouse has to be engineered to be able to accommodate both the hottest of the summers and the coldest of the winters, with most of the time compromising for economics to be able to get your product out. Being indoors, you can eliminate that compromise. And you also eliminate all those spikes, either in temperature or yield because you can keep that temperature, humidity, and light all the same month after month, after month. I think that uh, in greenhouses, you can get a beautiful spike in the summertime when you have all that extra sunlight, but you are going to slow down in the winter unless you have an insane amount of supplemental lighting to help you achieve the same results that you get in the summertime, which is probably not financially possible. I think that being indoors is the best way to be able to have a head of lettuce be the same every day of the month, every month of the year.
1: Why is that important?
2: People like consistency. So when you are selling to a larger supplier, you want to be able to provide them the same kind of same type of quality every week when you deliver to them. So if they have an order of 200 cases every week, you want to be able to consistently give them quality product at that 200 case count every single week of the year to make sure that you maintain your contract. I was going to say,
1: yeah, what happens if you
2: don't? I was not able to lock contracts during my greenhouse days. However, that is already nine years ago, right? So we're also in a different era at that point, Okay. right? But in the wintertime, I had to condense. I couldn't sell to all my customers anymore in the wintertime because I had lack of light because I'm in Minnesota versus being somewhere else in the country. And then in the summertime, I sometimes threw away product because I didn't have a place to sell it because everybody in Minnesota can sell
1: You were competing against
2: everybody else. Yeah. For about, you know, for about eight weeks of the year, you know, Mm -hmm. versus if you have a contract, you can state, I will supply you through November through March, but you have to, you have to purchase the same amount March through March through August or whatever it is. And that kind of just makes the market be very level. And then they know that it doesn't matter what day of the month that you're giving them that product, it's going to be the same quality because it was grown in the same way. Right.
1: So what would be your reduction, uh, or, or increase in production from like summer to winter in a greenhouse? I mean, at, at least percentage wise, like, were you 50% of what in the winter, what you could produce in the summer
2: or. I think it was about a 30% loss if I remember correctly. Okay. So it was the most expensive time to grow because you had to heat that greenhouse, you know, right? again, Minnesota and. I sometimes went down to negative 10 degrees and I have a plastic greenhouse that's, you know, double poly plastic greenhouse that you have to keep above freezing at some point. And at some point you have heaters going, but if it's negative 15 degrees and you're trying to hit even a temperature of 50 degrees, that's a 60, 65 degrees differential. That was hard to maintain. So sometimes I'd walk into my greenhouse and it's like 40, 45 degrees with all the heaters just blowing away in the middle of January you're gonna take a yield hit at that point or a quality hit versus if you stay somewhere that you can give the plants the temperatures they want at all times, you can keep that yield and that quality the same over and over and over again.
1: Um, would you also ventilate the greenhouse for humidity control or, or did you have to deal too much with humidity with your lettuce plants? And the- no, you had
2: to ventilate in the winter time to just make sure that, uh, your CO2 burners and all your burners didn't accumulate any gases you didn't want. And you had to get rid of that. CO- you had you had to get rid of the oxygen and, you know, so you could bring in more CO2, if you will. Uh, so my computers opened two small fans every five minutes for about 30 seconds and yeah. Then- a lot of times in the morning, I'm taking a baseball bat to the fins to, to knock off the ice. Oh. So the louvers <laughs> would open back up because you'd freeze over in the, you know, in the nighttime. By the oh time I God. was done, I had a continuous flow fan instead. That was just really slow. Yeah. It always can just continuously float. And you just watched all your heat go out of your bubble that you just spent all this money heating up to, to keep your production year round. It was, it was a very challenging I would never give it up though. That was that was one of the things that really taught me that I'm in the right profession. I, I wanted to grow food. I wanted to you know increase people's lives by giving them a healthier option. And I've always been a pesticide-free grower. That was the first thing I decided on day one. I nice. am not gonna put pesticides. I'm not gonna get my pesticide license. I had it for the US government when I was working for them. And I'm not going to renew it. I let it expire. If I have to ever do anything, I will shut down first. Figure out what's wrong and reopen.
1: So, is it easier to manage pests in your indoor farm than it was in a greenhouse? Oh,
2: totally. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, I'm going to knock on wood. Uh, once in a blue moon, we get a mosquito or something in our grow rooms, but um, so far we haven't seen any wow. cultural pests inside the grow rooms ever. As I said, on knocking on wood on that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: So why did you? So you went through all these different crops in the uh, at Living Greens, um, and you said consumers wanted the lettuce plants. Uh, but I mean, you even tried growing wheat and corn. I, a lot of people have said that, you know, growing our cereal grains is a, an effort not worth ch- attempting in a vertical farm because uh, the inputs would be too great for the quantity of Of wheat and corn and and grains that we would want to produce. Did you guys find that that was true or do you think that's a real concern or do you
2: think we could be growing? I think there's truly crops that have been mastered in other arenas that uh, indoor grow would not benefit them much. We grew the wheats and the corns just to say we did. Cool. We we even grew potatoes just so we could say we did it and moving on. Um, Okay. We didn't do it for any Commercial aspects or anything like that. We just wanted to see how tall we could get that cornstalk, going on an <laughs> A-frame, <laughs> and if we could get it to tassel. Could we get it actually to you know get an ear on that? Uh, can we get the wheat to tassel? You know, I never got corn on the corn because I don't have I didn't have any bees or any way to pollinate. Oh, up pollination! There. Yes, yes, yes. pollination got me. Well,
1: you know, on that note though, I mean that's one of the benefits of growing leafy greens, right? And culinary herbs indoors. You don't have to worry about pollination. Uh, when you guys were growing your, your vine crops, were you releasing bees into the farm?
2: No, I was releasing a Q-tip in my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, is a lot of work. We never grew anything that fruited <laughs> commercially. So you're, you're, you know, when we did okay. the, the small things in our old days of going through the different R and D. What do we wanna be? How do we wanna grow up? What is living greens gonna look like in the future? And we grew all these crops. We only did four or five plants of each in its own system to see what it did, what it, how it produced, what could it viably do? Yes, no, check it off the box and move on. So we never really grew anything that was fruiting in a commercial sense. Even my strawberries, when I, I grew strawberries, I think I had 30 plants total. And uh, we just took a Q-tip every morning and pollinated in the morning, and then pollinated at night before we left.
1: Can you help our listeners um, understand what is aeroponics and how does it different from hydroponics? What are the the benefits? What have you guys? What do you guys like about aeroponics?
2: The Greek definition of aeroponics means working air, right? Working and so you're using air. the air to be what you want it making it work for you. For example, if you have the roots in an air situation and you missed it with some nutrient water and you're giving it everything it needs in that nice little spa-like splash of water, if you will, and then you allow the roots to do what they're supposed to do. They see water, you have the cations and anions, and you have all the different conductivities of the water being absorbed into the plant and going up through the plant and doing what it needs to do. But then those roots dry out a little bit and have the potential to draw in the oxygen they need. And they dry out just a little bit. And they say, oh, I'm a little bit dry. I'm going to create more of a root mass so I can grab that water when it comes around again. And I know when it's coming, you know, plants can tell time, right? They know when it's morning, they know when it's night. And I know that water's coming. So if i feather out my roots just a little bit more and create this better mass, I'll be able to absorb that water just a little bit faster every time I get it. And that way I can bring more to the top and have more production on the top. So aeroponics is truly putting the roots into an air system and just being fogged, mist, splash, however, when you phrase it, whichever type of aeroponics you're using versus hydroponics, the roots are somehow, in some way, underwater somewhere. Whether it's NFT and you have the water going down the channel or you have deep water hydroponics, some of the roots are underwater. At that point, those roots have to create that extra barrier that they need so they don't drown, if you will. And I'm air quoting the drown because they can't absorb water at that point. They're in, or they can't absorb the air molecules that they need because plants breathe through their roots, exhale through their their leaves when they're in water. And so a lot of like NFT, which is what I used to use, nutrient film technique, I would have the roots in the water, but then I'd always have these really feathery roots that were just above the water channel Hmm. or an aeroponic root system inside of a hydroponic root system so they could actually breathe. So we just made the best of both worlds. We took what the plant wants. It wants the nutrients, but it still has to breathe and married the two and found that the when we find that perfect ratio of watering and air cycling and the and the plant is very happy, you get a totally different root development system, and you see yields like you would like there's just like there's no tomorrow.
1: That is so interesting. So okay, if if I compared nFT to aeroponics, I mean, I, and I don't think it's going to matter on what crop you're growing. Do you adjust the concentration or ratio of nutrients? And and if this is proprietary, stop me. But um, I'm just curious, like just what you described that if roots are always inundated, um, you know, are always in water with hydroponics um, and and constantly being fed nutrients. Uh, and always exposed to the, that nutrient dense water, fertigation water, as opposed to aeroponics where you just describe like the roots are going to feather out. They want to gobble up that water when it's ready to happen. You know, they're happy and oxygenated. I mean, does that also sort of translate into nutrients? Like for n- NFT would maybe you have a lower uh, nutrient concentration because it's always flowing through the roots where aeroponics, you might have a higher concentration so that when the plants receive it, it's like going to receive it in bulk?
2: I can only say that we have a very different fertigation program than hydroponics.
1: Okay. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. So, it, I mean, and that's fine. So it's not the same.
2: It is not the same. No, yeah. I started because I had, I had all this knowledge of hydroponics with NFT. Mm-hmm. So I started with a basic NFT recipe and then just modified modified it over the years to what we are tonight, what we are today.
1: Okay. So you're a believer in aeroponics. Obviously you're all in now.
2: Right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel that there is uh, room for all. So like, I don't think that you could, I could do any better than the hydroponic tomato growers. They, mm-hmm. they, they got that. They, they perfected that. That yeah. is fabulous. I was one of the first people i'm not the first but i was one of the first people to grow commercially hydroponic lettuce this is a very young industry there's so many things that can be taught and learned and and improved on that hydroponics may have not been the stopping point in the technology mainstream of that product you know i feel that hydroponics is a very great start you don't have as many catch points as you do in aeroponics if there is something wrong in aeroponics you don't have as much time to get to that plant and save it as you do right. in hydroponics.
1: Right. Yeah. Or deep water culture is like the best case, right? Because you always have access to water. Yeah. yeah. You always
2: have access to water. So there's, there's different levels of complexity that you are gaining when you go from hydroponics to aeroponics, but you also have the potential of a higher gain consistency and, and reliably using that aeroponics. So it's also a factor of risk too.
1: So I know that some of our listeners are big fans of soil, living soil. Any thoughts on that? I don't know if you've had any experience growing in the ground. Um, But, you know, you you just made the comment there's sort of, you know, room for all and all ways to grow. Um, Do you have any thoughts on, like, what the differences would be with growing those roots in in a ground system as opposed to hydroponics or, or aeroponics?
2: That is exactly what I'm trying to mimic. In a ground situation, say you put a lettuce plant in the perfect soil. It's aerated. It has just enough air to water ratio in that soil. It rains every two to three days because you're in the perfect location. Those roots are going to become nice and feathery. That is what we just brought indoors and controlled it. Hmm. But we don't have Birds flying overhead, or pollution coming down in acid rain. <laughs> <laughs> we just took that perfect lettuce.
1: A hailstorm coming through, fires yeah. taking it out. Yeah. <laughs> so, just before we we leave lettuce specifically, um, what I mean, you've grown all these different crops. What makes lettuce? uniquely lettuce when it comes to, to growing indoors or in a greenhouse as a, compared to say
2: tomatoes or, or wheat? I grow a plant that I also love. I love the flavor and the textures of lettuce. I can taste and smell the different flavor profiles. I grow lettuce because I love lettuce and all the nuances that it can provide when you're growing it. I'm going to another, I'm going to go to why do I love plants? Well, plants are mostly lettuce for me. Plants are predictable when you learn to listen to them talk. And I've learned to listen how lettuce talks. So during the course of one of my grow room walks, I have several conversations with the different systems that are in production. No, I'm not actually talking to them. Just you're going to ask that next. I know that. But I'm listening to what they need, you know, how they're utilizing what they're getting, how I can help facilitate their growth and so on. And so my love of that lettuce stems from the knowledge that I can have a positive or negative impact on what they're doing, and I'm going to try to positively impact, so I can get that look, that taste, that feel that everybody wants at the end of its growing cycle. So one of the things that myself and our, my grower does with me, we do taste tests. What's our sa- acid count on this? We do bricks tests. What is the sugar content? We on do lettuce? Yes. Interesting. <laughs> So we do taste tests. What is, what does this stem taste like? We're harvesting this tomorrow. What can we do to sweeten the load on this lettuce before tomorrow? What can we do to make it more crisp or more rigid? When you listen to a plant and you listen to how they're growing, then you can change what they need to have because I have the ability to do so and give them what they want. And that, that I love lettuce because I figured them out probably is, is that, yeah, you know, I've, I have good conversations with them.
1: I just have this image in my head of you hugging a lettuce plant right now. You, I knew you
2: were going to go somewhere like that. <laughs> I knew that.
1: <laughs> do you have any photos like that? Because if you don't, uh, when I eventually come visit you, I'm going to force you
2: to take a photo like that. <laughs> I do not have any pictures of me hugging my lettuce. I do not. No. <laughs>
1: Um, I also want to say that I love that you do take um, Brick's measurements because I actually really love lettuce too. And since I was in college, my friends, my roommates would make fun of me because I would literally just eat lettuce. I I wouldn't even need to dress it or put it in a salad. And while I was making the salad, I would eat the lettuce as I was doing it. Um, especially like those hard crunchier parts that nobody wants for some reason. Everybody wants like the flimsy leafy part. And I'm like, no, the crunchy part is the sweet part, right? And so I would be eating that while I'm like, anyway, so um, yeah, my, my roommates used to call me a rabbit. I, I love that you love lettuce because I love lettuce too. So, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, really a big reason why you're you're on this podcast, why I asked you to do this with me is because whenever I talk to you, I learned something new and I've learned some new things here already. You know, you guys have done a lot of in-house experiments. Uh, You continue to do in-house experiments Uh, and and I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about why you do these in-house experiments and what, you know, what you have learned about the various technologies um, that are sort of being Promoted or or used in in indoor agriculture, and of course you know like don't you don't have to give any secrets away, but I am really curious why you guys take that approach of 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 experimentation. And um, I mean, you've been in this industry for indoor ag eight years with greenhouses, what eighteen years? I mean, what have you seen developed? I mean, what have you tried that was awesome? What did you try that like? Just don't, don't go there. Or, you know, like this was snake oil. I don't know.
2: That was a lot of questions in one
1: state. I know it was. (laughs) Pick and choose from there.
2: So I'm going to start with, uh, why do we do experiments at Living Greens? And I'm going to break it down to a very fun quote. It's all about the better mousetrap, right? If you don't continue to innovate, improve and try to become better, then you are never going to be the person who gets the best product to market we are always striving for greater yield and better shelf life. That's why we went indoors. You can make those small changes to the environment and hopefully potentially reap some huge great rewards. Recipe building is always being done and that is the key behind of all the experiments that we're doing. And I think the industry uh, is just getting a better understanding of like the criticalness of having the correct environment conditions surrounding the plants. So when you find a particular set of conditions, say relative humidity, for a particular variety, you can watch those plants respond on a daily basis to those conditions that you set for them. You can reap an incredible reward that is visually seen by either vibrancy, lack of disease, or you can see a more economic reward in the increased yield. Hmm. Unfortunately, those conditions change from variety to variety though. You have to map each condition for each variety that you're growing. And so you can do that for every variable that you can control indoors, relative humidity, temperature, light, you know, how much airflow, how less airflow, how much CO2, when you put that CO2, how much water, how much EC, what are the different conditions in that EC? As long as you can break things down to the pieces and change them, you're always gonna have experiments to do and you always have a way to make yourself better. That's one of the reasons why we experiment. The one thing I'd say is snake oil in the industry. I can't say there is a single snake oil. I think that our industry is so young that we we don't have true snake oil people or technologies yet. We just don't have technologies that have been proven or not been proven. I think that just going to Indoor ACON this last month or so, you see all these different technologies trying to achieve the same goal. And everybody has the same Basic concept, you know whether or not this person's mine or somebody else becomes snake oil in the future is is still yet to be seen. But we're still all so young; you just don't see it. I don't think it's there yet.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting perspective. It's hard to know what is legit and what's not legit until anything is proven or disproven. Right, everything's on the table.
2: Everything's on the table. This industry has not proven the test of time yet.
1: That's an awesome perspective. So do you guys track energy and water use and relate it
2: to productivity or profitability? We do track both water and electrical metrics, part of our COGS. In the facility I'm currently in, we do not have the ability to make any changes to it. We are what we are because we're in a research facility. So the facility I'm in in Faribault, we sell commercially but we're never going to be a large farm at that location. It is a building, it's not a very big building. And we kind of built helter skelter within the building as we grew into the different research and development stages. So we recognize that you have to do something about water and you have to do something about electricity. So we took those lessons learned and we're opening our first commercial size facility in the Midwest in 2022, I'm hoping to drop seeds in April or May. And there we are uh, already put into capturing the condensate off the HVACs, reusing my tank water, putting it back into use into the building. We own several acres on that site. We're putting a solar farm to offset our electrical use on the grid. And so our goal for this next farm is to be off-grid as much as possible because we understand the importance of it. We just really can't do anything about our current situation because it, it is what it is, where it is, because that was our research farm that makes
1: sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, I love hearing that you guys are gonna implement uh, renewable energy into your uh, new farm. If there was one thing you could do, or will do uh, to reduce energy use and not necessarily offset energy use with solar, um, but actually reduce how much energy you consume, what do you think it would be? Where's the low hanging fruit in your farm?
2: Automation. I think automation would be the lowest fruit that you could you could gather because if you look at all the amount of people automation brings the ability to transplant multiple times if you have to harvest at a consistent rate and process that product all in a streamlined format that humans cannot do so we'd waste a lot of resources a lot of electricity a lot of space if we didn't incorporate automation as a piece of our future farms. How
1: does automation save energy? Cause I automatically think, oh, now we have robots and motors and like all these other things. Like to me that is using more energy. How does it use less?
2: You're thinking just power, right? Right now, in, in, in our world- Fair, we are, fair. We, we have labor shortages, right? When you have a limited set of resources and yeah, exactly. limited, and your limited resource is labor, You have to look for a solution to solve that problem. Automation is the solving of that problem. I can keep my farm smaller in that aspect. The robot's just moving and I can continue growing more product in the space that would be where the humans would normally have worked.
1: So I want to kind of go into that a little bit because I think that's a really important point for the people who are trying to regulate energy is that it's not just about energy, right? It's about water. It's about labor. It's about efficiency in general and how we achieve that. And it's, you know, in terms of, of automating labor, I mean, we're having labor shortages in every sector in our country, right? And and it doesn't matter if you're a restaurant or if you're a farm, you're having trouble staffing your people, right? And, and so I think that's a totally fair thing to say. And you know, even with, with farm labor laws, it's really hard to, to hire people who want to work in a field farm, let alone find people who are skilled enough who can work in a high-tech farm like you guys are operating. And, and so automating uh, labor is sort of the natural progression of, of, of human nature right? I mean, that's something I love about agricultural engineering. Uh, And one of the things I'm most proud of to be an agricultural engineer is that I feel like agriculture was basically the impetus for almost every engineering profession there is, right? Because we had to solve all these problems with farm, you know, about farming. And so we've just developed all this technology around growing crops, storing crops, producing food, getting it to people, right? I mean, a lot of it has been built up around agriculture and farming. And so, although automating labor may seem controversial in some circles, it just is 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 what we do. And, you know, we I, I think our our society at large has been really focused on energy for the last 30 or 40 years, but, you know, I always say we're going to solve the energy crisis, right? I mean, we're going to build more renewable energy systems. Uh, we're gonna have electric cars, right? I mean, we're, we're gonna do all these things that is going to solve our energy shortages. But what we can't make up for is water. And we know that farming uses 60% or more of our freshwater resources. So for farming, I really want more focus on, on water and, and the benefits of indoor agriculture for that, as well as labor. I mean, we are going to have to feed how many billions of people uh, in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years and uh, with fewer and fewer people who are farming, um, we have fewer and fewer people who can feed us, uh, let's be honest. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that perspective.
2: Yeah. So like one of the things that we decided in our next farm in the Midwest is that water that you're talking about, if we collect the condensate and if we reuse uh, and recondition the water coming off of the tanks after they're, after they are exhausted, we have very little water coming into the building for growing that product. We have Mm -hmm. not closed closed loop dust, but we're very close to closed loop at that point. So now we are not a draw or, or a, challenge for that municipality because we are now basically on our own
1: yeah yeah that's awesome um i mean what what do you think the barriers are for reducing energy and water use
2: i think the technology is slowly catching up to what we want to do i look at my first generation of led lights how much power they use versus the induction lights i used before then versus the high pressure sodiums that i used before then and then now the LEDs that I'm, I'm getting ready to put into my new farm, how much power they use versus how much output they now give mm-hmm. for the same amount of power. And, and so I think that being such a new industry, we are, technology is doing a huge catch-up and we will get more efficient on using the resources that we have, such as power, by bringing all those engineers that need to be focused on, you know, making the next, most trap the best way they possibly can in getting us the toys that we need to use and making them more energy efficient. Awesome.
1: So, um, Michelle, do you consider indoor agriculture, uh, specifically what you do, indoor production of leafy greens, a competitive or collaborative industry?
2: I, I would consider it a, a competitive industry as of right now. You know, again, being a new industry with so many players attempting to be number one and trying to gain that commercial acceptance into the market is a challenge. Many of the companies, including mine, feel they have to hold on to that proprietary information they have gathered. We call them painful lessons learned at Living Greens, but until they are well-established in the market and have achieved that relevancy beyond niche market. There was a great speaker at Indoor Acon this year that discussed our industry and where he feels all of the players are sitting right now, and where we as an industry, as well as individual companies, need to go. He described our whole industry as a niche market of growers yet, and none of our companies have jumped that chasm into industry-changing entities. I fully agree with them. The next 5, 10 years are going to be very eye-opening. 18 years ago, I was defining what indoor growing meant to people, and people were looking at me going, hydro what? when I walked into places. Today aeroponics and hydroponics are household words. Currently, I think we are in the equivalent of the space race that would happen in the late 60s. Who can get get to the market large enough and become a major player and to be profitable? Five to 10 years from now, I see maybe five to 10 players settling into the space and becoming the norm. I think we'll always continue to be challenged with like new innovations and technologies that will aid and help facilitate the technology and that, that that technology will become more and more economically stable. And at that time, we'll become more of a collaborative than a competitive because we're now into the market versus just trying to break into break break into that market.
1: Yeah, it's more mature. Um, you've kind of figured things out and um, at least the big things out that then it's just the fine tuning um, and, and helping each other. I mean, it's interesting because you know talking about having big companies do what we what what we're marketing at least right now is local urban farming i mean I, I, it just to me kind of is in the face of what we're promoting as an industry right now that you know, it's locally grown. Get to know your farmer, right? We're not like these big conglomerates, like Big Ag, blah blah blah. You know, like they're evil. I'm
2: going to contradict. Do we have to be big. I'm going to contradict you there, though. Okay. Every single speaker that was a big speaker at our indoor econ, that our, our industry convention, was a multi-location go- trying to become a big farm. Because everybody in this market at this moment feels they have to go big to become profitable or to become that 1%, 2%, 3% of the market that they need to become profitable and viable for the future for their company. And so they are all saying that we are still local. We're just local in 10 different locations. And each location has its own local radius. Living Greens is going to do the exact same thing. We are going to be in several places in the country in the next four years. And in each part of that, part of the country we are choosing a certain radius that we are willing to deliver to so we can still consider our, ourselves local interesting what radius one day's travel by delivery truck so up to up to 500 miles is is ish is what we're thinking right now we want to be able to harvest and process in one day and be on the shelves of our customers the next that is that okay. is our sales model
1: yeah, as opposed to five to seven days to get from Salinas to New York City. Correct. Yeah. Or Yuma in the winter up to Faribault, uh, Minnesota, right? Right.
2: And so yeah. I think all the bigger bigger players have that same concept in mind. Multiple locations in these urban centers bring you know, bring the farms to the jobs, bring the farms to the people, if you will, so you can get the farm labor that you do need and still be local, and still be a huge conglomerate.
1: Do you think it'll be easier to find labor in the city or in these urban markets than
2: out in rural areas? I do. We uh, advertise as factory work. We don't advertise as farm labor. Oh,
1: interesting.
2: You know, I, my, my employees are harvesting lettuce, yes, but they are doing a repetitive factory-type job. You're at any point, point in the day, you're either harvesting the lettuce, cleaning the lettuce, prepping it for processing, transplanting lettuce, cleaning the system before you transplant it, seeding lettuce, or you're in the processing room processing it. And you're at stations, very much like a factory would be that you're in this station for one, two or three hours before you move to the next station and do the next task.
1: Yeah, I mean, that really lives up to that whole concept uh, that Dr. Kozai is known for um, sort of conceptualizing in the late 90s of the plant factory. Uh, mm-hmm. You guys are
2: doing that. And I think that a lot of the other big factories and big plant companies are doing the same thing, you know, bringing it in. And the people that are working on your floor, you know, they have a set of tasks, but that they that's it's a more of a factory mindset than a farm mindset. Interesting
1: though. I mean, people must be more excited to, well, I don't know, uh, to be working with, uh, lettuce plants and living things than, I don't know, uh, inanimate, uh, widget objects.
0: (laughs)
2: There is, there is a simplicity in creating widgets in that the widgets never changes. (laughs) Right. Um, Any person who says that they have perfect product quality every single day of every single year is lying. Mm. And so you have to, you do have to train your staff to recognize when there is something wrong, because you're not going to see every head before it gets harvested as a grower. You can, you see the general crop and, uh, you have to make sure they realize that if they do see something wrong, they say something or do something about it. And I guess being that kind of widget, you know, you have a melted part versus a perfectly square part. It's all melted. You, you have to know when to toss and when to grab the next widget piece and keep, keep making widgets, right? Right. But it's just a different type of training and, uh, you know, different standards that, you know, you have to do, like wear your hairnets. We, we, we compare ourselves to the food industry that we have here locally. We have a turkey store, the Genio Turkey Store, you know, they have to play with dead turkeys. You get to play with plants. Pick one.
1: <laughs> I know which one I would pick. <laughs> uh, let me just ask you while we're talking about um, staffing and, and uh, this sort of idea of locally grown. I mean, why
2: Minnesota?
1: Um, what makes Minnesota a good place uh, and specifically where you are uh, to do this?
2: Our founder found the our, our original CEO and founder got into Faribault. Um, he was from the Twin Cities, and Faribault was attractive because we have a very large highway right next door to us called I-35. Uh, we're thirty miles from the Twin Cities. We're fifty miles from Iowa. We're thirty mm-hmm. miles from I-90, and so one of the one of the key components of this location is we're far enough out of the cities that we don't have the challenge of city ordinances, like the the major metropolitan area. We have all the benefits of being in a town that wants to bring industry to them. And so you have all the incentives of that. And then you have, we're literally three blocks away from I-35 that can go north and south all the way around the country if we really wanted to. And uh, that helps logistics immensely
1: especially if, yeah, if you're trying to transport within 500 miles, you have to make sure that there's a way to get there, right? Yep.
2: So the, the, the locations of our farms are going to be very instrumental on, you know, where those key highways are, where are your logistic hubs, you know, wh- where are we trying to deliver to? Who are our customers that we want to deliver to? What co- You know, what contracts do we already have? And does our farm being in a closer proximity to them give us an economic edge or not?
1: How do you predict our industry of indoor agriculture is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years. You were just talking about like sort of how some of these companies are are still new and that over the next five to 10 years, maybe we'll we'll mature and get to that point of having industry changing entities. Um, But what else do you see evolving? Um, What are you excited to see in the next decade? Are you still going to be doing what you're doing in 10 years?
2: I'm not going to, no, I'm going to be retired in 10 years.
1: There you go. Congratulations.
2: um, (laughs) That that was a joke. Um, I I would like to see us succeed and move on to being the best as an industry that we can be. So when you you talk to like the soybean association or the corn association, they talk as a we, Mm. we are doing this. We are, we are helping create this product to feed the world. We are, we are, and it's a we scenario. I would like to see our indoor industry, the leafy greens industry. Let's just segregate that out for a second and become more, uh, more collaborative in the next 10 years and get to a point where we all understand that baby greens are, this type of technology full greens are this technology and you have your different technologies you have your nfts you have your deep water you have your aeroponics you have whatever media you're growing in but we all are playing in a very large pond and we all are only producing a couple drops of water for that pond you know let's let's get together and chit chat because you know frankly there the, the amount of increases in the produce section if you, if you do any of the trending, there is more than enough for all of us. Mm. So let's let's just keep moving forward as an industry. Let's start working together and maybe get the legislation to work in our favor, such okay. as organic standards. Or one, one of the hits we keep hitting at Living Greens is every year, our premise audit changes and changes and changes because they're trying to catch up to indoor agriculture. And some of the things that are on these lists that you have to now, prove compared to a farm that's outside in the dirt, if you will, is kind of re- not ridiculous. I understand the importance of it, but it's like, really? Yeah, um, and you're going to ask me for examples, <laughs> aren't you?
1: Well, I would love an example. It sounds fascinating. I love this.
2: One of the things that I always lose points on in an agricultural, good agricultural practices audit is that I have water on the floor. Okay, if I was out in Mother Nature and I have a farm field of lettuce, you're telling me that you're not going to pass my farm if I got dirt and water going down my rows.
1: Why? Why are they marking you for that? Like, what's the concern?
2: The concern is that disease and algae and other things can start growing on your floor and become a hazard to the food safety part of your farm if you have water on the floor.
1: I mean, but you're keeping jet fuel off your plants. You're keeping deer out of your field from grazing and shitting on your plants. There you go. We're, and that's not a bluebird, just so you know. I mean, give me a break.
2: <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the one I can come up with the most. No, that's a beautiful example.
1: Every single time. Can't ask
2: for anything better. There, there, there is no way that you can have. 75,000 plants growing at the exact same time in three different grow rooms and not have any water anywhere on that floor in 20,000 square feet or 10,000 square feet or whatever I am. It just doesn't happen, you know? (laughs) That's amazing.
1: You know, by the way, 75,000 lettuce plants, I, for a given area, I don't know, an acre or to whatever unit area you want to use, how much more lettuce can you grow than a field?
2: Someone, not me, did the calculation that two of my 56-foot systems can produce the same amount of lettuce per year as an acre of of lettuce out in California.
1: Two fifty-six 56-foot systems, so is that that's the length. So you have a total of 112 feet times some... Area. Four feet
2: wide, 10 feet tall. Each of them holds 2,056 heads of romaine lettuce that is rotated on a continuous basis over a certain amount of time that I can't disclose. And that crop rotation with two of those systems equals one acre of. Wow.
1: And how much less water do you think you use?
2: Uh, we say ninety nine, just like almost everybody else does.
1: Because you're recycling your water that you're putting in, right? It's coming, it's draining back to the system, and you're yeah. recirculating it.
2: Yep, we we recirculate to a certain amount of time, or when the plants tell us. Uh, we have found when we need to when we need to dump, and we kind of go in front of it, if you will. Yeah. Say you dump your tanks once a week, because on the eighth day all the plants die. Well, you don't want the plants to die, so you're going to drain that tank before that happens, right? You wait, you, wait a preventative measure? A preventative measure, yes. Wow, a preventative what measure. a concept in America. <laughs> what a concept. And so you find that sweet spot and then you go in front of it or the dead spot, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and, and then that's when you and if you have your practices right, you stop filling that tank when you know you're going to drain it. For example, I have 20,000 plants on only 800 gallons. We're not wow. talking about a lot of water here. Wow what is a typical hot tub about 800 gallons, right? Is it? Oh my God. Wow.
1: (laughs) Thank you for that metric.
2: You know, so there you go. Um, A swim spa, like a regular swim spa is 1400 gallons. I know that one for a fact because I own one. And my tanks in my grow rooms are 800 gallons. And so as I'm swimming in my swim spa, I realize I am in more water than 20,000 plants 40,000 plants of mine have. Holy Hannah. Yes. You have to know your water chemistry, right? That's again, that's the difference between a little bit of difference between hydroponics and aeroponics aeroponics. We push that water chemistry to the max. It takes about two years for me to train a grower on all the nuances in growing and have them become an intuitive and great grower. I've had the incredible experience of having at least two if not three really incredible people in my lives that I've trained to become growers and watching them be and do in the grow rooms and watching them intuitively look, smell, taste and realize what they're doing is a phenomenal thing. Passing off that knowledge and sharing that knowledge of, of what needs to be learned to be able to go that deep into your water chemistry and still have a successful product. It doesn't take much to mess up that small of water chemistry.
1: No, oh, I'm sure. Especially at such a low volume, right? You make one wrong, I don't know, slip of the pore <laughs> or injection, however you guys do it, whatever you guys do. And you have a completely different chemistry. Yeah, for sure. What do you What do you think is the biggest challenge of growing indoors?
2: HVAC, <laughs> as, as you all well know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why?
2: Because... You have to have a fundamental understanding of what your plants need, when they need it, and how they need it delivered to them.
1: Why is it different than irrigation or
2: lighting? The plant will grow to a light for a certain amount of time, but a plant can't grow to an HVAC system. The HVAC has to come to the plant, right? So Uh if you have this plant, and we're going to pick a butter lettuce because most people know that butter lettuce has this beautiful whirl it looks like a rose on the inside. And that rose on the dead center, if that air just stays there stagnant, you are now creating a microclimate in that canopy within those inner leaves. And they can't do anything because this is the whole point of plants is that they draw up from the roots because they're breathing out of the leaves. If they can't breathe out that moisture and get that moisture moved or wicked away, if you will, from their leaves, they can't absorb anything. So if you do not get that air to the plant when it needs it, how it needs it, you just turned off the plant. You might as well turn off the the lights. You might as well turn off the CO2. That plant ain't growing if you don't have that airflow going to that plant canopy when it needs it. Hmm.
1: So do you think humidity is more critical than temperature?
2: I do. I think that especially for lettuce products, you have your different tolerances with your different lettuces, your icebergs versus your light leaf lettuces versus your novas versus your romaine and your butter. All of them have different tolerance ranges that they can handle for temperature, but all of them are greater than the humidity range that they can tolerate. They can handle like a 15, 20 degree temperature range and be okay. But if you get over that threshold of humidity, again, you might as well turn off the lights, you might as well turn off the CO2 and go home because You're not going to have a crop that's what you need it for anyway. Our unique challenge is we are growing full-size product. Uh, I am shooting for six and a half, seven ounces processable product, which means my head has to be almost 10 ounces big, separated from the root before you take off the core. How do you get to that size plant with the conditions you need it to be to be able to survive that processing, have that thickness? It all comes down to how do you get the proper air to that plant To make sure it gets what it needs.
1: I have so many thoughts around this, but one is that, you know, we know those those curves uh, that have been produced for a lot of different plants where you're looking for the optimization point, right, of light, temperature, and carbon dioxide to maximize yield. But I mean, even just based on on what you just said right here is that the tolerance for temperature might be very large. You know, are we missing um, an optimization point? Should, rather than temperature, should we be looking at humidity or maybe it's vapor pressure deficit? Maybe that higher temperature um, or that that peak temperature where CO2 and light come together is actually representative, representative of a specific relative humidity, which together would really translate into a vapor pressure deficit. Do you think we're missing that?
2: We do, I, I yes. And I tend to think in grams of water in the air versus okay. versus percent. And that's just because that's Good. how I was taught, yeah. again, yeah. old school here. Anytime I see grams of water in my air that's over 10, I get nervous. You know, you, you need to know what your crop is. You need to know how how to grow your crop. Now, if I was growing tomatoes, you probably want like 15 grams of water in the air because you want that humidity for the, for the tomatoes. You know, I am, I am growing a full size romaine. I need to know what my tolerances are for that romaine lettuce, regardless of what the temperature is. So I don't get the tip burn. I don't get the center rot. I don't get the botrytis. I don't get the slimy centers. And I get the thickness that I need to be able to process it. It's all about, can I process that product? Because if I get a 7-ounce head of lettuce processing, but it's too thin to process, I might as well go fill the dumpster.
1: And the humidity actually affects the thickness of those leaves? Of course.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Positively. How much more can I say that?
1: I told you, I love talking to you. I always learn something. know. So the other thing, the other comment I wanted to make um, is, you know, you said if you don't have the humidity right and, you know, the plant has shut off, so you might as well turn the lights off. And you might as well turn the CO2 off. Um, what I see a lot, especially with cannabis growers, is that they're so afraid of temperature. They're afraid of heat. And and I get it. They were, have, you know, historically been growing under high pressure sodium lamps, which produce a lot of radiant energy. Um, but, you know... They, they have really high light levels, greater than 1,000 micromoles. Now they're pushing like 1,500 or 1,800 micromoles, like it's crazy. Um, and a CO2 level concentration of like 1,500 parts per million, but they're running at these really low temperatures at like 75 degrees or lower. And you know, what I try to convince them is that you guys are hitting the you know, the accelerator over here with CO2 and light, but at the same time you're hitting the brakes with your temperature, you know, like you might as well not enrich to 1500 parts per million because your plant isn't, you know, metabolizing the CO2 that you're giving it. Like it just doesn't have enough energy to do what you want it to do with all that CO2 and light. So I appreciate you making that comment. It's true for every plant, right?
2: It, it is. And, and if you're going to hit the acceleration, you better know your all your variables in that acceleration.
1: Yeah. Cause it's not just about the environmental variables, right? Cause I'm sure you also have to then compensate for nutrient levels, right? And water, um, and, and how your plant responds that way. And so yeah. if
2: you are going to change your acceleration rate, uh, even by two to three degrees for Romaine, for example, You better have a different schedule for your fertilization. You better have a different watering schedule. You better have a different air schedule. And you better have a different temperature schedule that relates to that humidity in those grams of water in the air. Otherwise, you are going to have a very large amount of unusable product very quickly.
1: Yeah. Do yield and quality go together all the time? Or can you have an increase in yield and less quality or vice versa?
2: Yes. Uh, You can have a... Uh, You would love to have yield and quality always be one and together, but you don't, doesn't necessarily always equate. More often than not, they do though. So if you have very little tip burn, if you have very little botrytis, you have every, all your powdery mildew has been controlled in the room. Again, if any grower says that they've never had that, they're lying to you because every grower experiences those challenges. If all those are lined up, that means your humidity and temperature are in spec, which means that your plant is going to grow faster. And as long as you have your watering program set to the right parameters and your root structure, you haven't burned them off by putting too much acid in your tank or something like that, everything is going to respond in the positive manner. So now you have a higher quality plant and that's going to equal higher yield, right? Because you, yeah, oh, yeah, you don't have to take off any you don't have to take off any, you know, anything else. Yeah. But there are times that we get a larger product that is a little bit thinner that we can't process you know, it's, it's the caliper of the thickness of the leaf, you know, how much of that epidermal layer has been laid down because of the different environmental conditions I've put through the room.
1: I mean, it's interesting because for chopped lettuce, you talk a lot about like the thickness and crispness as a, as a quality measure. I mean, I guess it's not just a quality measure, but I mean, do you guys also try to control other qualitative variables such as Taste and bricks and things like that are you guys trying to make adjustments to those as well
2: we do but i'm going to break down to like our biggest seller caesar salad right caesar is one of the biggest ones when have you ever enjoyed a limpy soggy caesar salad it's not it's all about the crunch it's all about the freshness and the flavor profile of that crunch if i obtain that crunch that everybody seems to enjoy and want and desire in Caesar salad, my bricks is going to be right there with it. I've, I've already, I've already, I've already married the two together Okay. for me to get the cellular structure to create that. I've also already given it what it needs to get the flavor profile that I needed to get as well.
1: Hmm. Well, I've, I've mostly exhausted my questions here. Um, this has been really fun uh, to talk to you. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm gonna just going to leave with, I'm not going to leave with this question, but this is my last sort of um, official question here. Uh, but what do plants crave, Michelle?
0: To be
2: listened to and get what they're asking for. That's all they want. That's all they crave. Love they're kind of like teenagers.
1: <laughs> but they're nicer to you, right?
2: Oh, so much more nicer. Okay.
1: okay. And luckily they don't have, voices so they can't yell at you
2: you didn't listen to what i was saying earlier all the time
1: (laughs) i learned nothing (laughs) all right so i am going to end with uh, a few rapid fire questions for you okay are you ready i promise they're fun okay are plants introverts or extroverts
2: extroverts they scream what they want
1: Like teenagers?
2: Like teenagers. Okay.
1: Can indoor agriculture feed the world?
2: Not 100% by itself.
1: Can it nourish the world?
2: It can nourish the world. It can supplement the world. But again, going back to the practices, that there's some things that have been developed that indoor agriculture may not be able to uh, overcome. I'm going to talk about your wheat and your corns in the soil. As long as we have some soil that is farmable, I think we'll keep all our cereal grains outside, so therefore we're not 100 feeding the world. Yeah, we're supplementing the world. Okay, I so, like it. So the I, I put that the dirt farmers feed the world. We give them we give all the tasty tidbits that people enjoy eating with that food.
1: Tasty tidbits, love it. That's going to be the title of this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, last question: How much lettuce do you eat every week?
2: I have a salad a day. By the time I'm done tasting, uh, I'm not allowed to eat in my grow rooms, but by the time myself and my grower Matt walk around and grab, that's one salad in itself by doing all the different tastings. And I tend to eat a salad with lunch as well.
1: Okay. So two salads, maybe.
2: Probably, yeah. yeah. One big salad.
1: (laughs) Do you know how much salad or how much lettuce the average U.S. consumer
2: eats? Once a week, twice a week guessing
1: i i hope so let's hope for that
2: i mean if you look at the salad bag salad industry and how much it's increasing year over year on in it's the biggest increasing market in the grocery store Mm -hmm. so somebody has to be eating it
1: yeah i mean it's so convenient it's so nice i mean probably the hardest one of the hardest parts about making a salad is the dressing (laughs) it's nice when the dressing just comes with it
2: not necessary for myself to eat salad, but I see why others have to do so. If yeah. you're putting salad dressing on salad, you're not tasting the lettuce. But that's just my personal opinion. I agree. Or
1: the tomatoes or the cucumbers or the nuts or whatever other goodies you have put on it, right? Well thank you michelle uh this was really fun i promise i did learn a lot um even though i didn't get one of the major takeaways that lettuce will scream at you um, (laughs) and you just have to listen for their little screams (laughs) Seventy-five thousand plants in one room screaming at me though i i mean i feel deaf already so
2: yep you always know when you walk in the room if something's wrong Mm -hmm. that's when you know you got yourself a good grower
1: well that and that's what makes you a good grower is that you're paying attention so um well thank you so much Michelle um this has been fun and uh have a great rest of your day uh thanks everyone this has been what plants crave with Michelle Keller who is the head grower of Living Greens thanks Michelle thank you
0: that was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Michelle Keller of Living Greens Farm for our series What Plants Crave. We will be taking a break from episodes next Tuesday, but we'll be back in the new year. I'm Dana Sudan and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Please stay safe, enjoy your holidays, and as always, thank you for listening.